Well, praise God, rise up. I am so excited uh, to be with you guys again this week. Um, by God's grace, I'm praying that you guys have been enjoying uh, the fall. I've been thanking God for the awesome weather, uh, the awesome relationships. I feel like everyone's in the mode of trying to just squeeze out the last piece of fall and summer before winter comes. Um, I'm praying that God's been blessing you guys. I'm praying that you've been able to find some consecrated time with the Lord. I think that life can get so busy. And on top of that, I think the enemy a lot of times will try to make us so busy. He'll try to make us confused. He'll try to make us even so anxious or worried about things that are real, whether it's with your job. You know, I remember the other day or even today, even right before uh, working on working on this, um, you know, I started getting all these emails from work and conversations with coworkers, and it was just so easy to get so flustered and to be so zoomed in on what was happening. And I just needed to stop and breathe. And I've been trying to learn the process of how do I let the Holy Spirit help me, how I say it, zoom out, right? And zoom out and instead of getting so fixated or focused on the things that I'm doing in the present, Remembering all that in the lens of eternity, in the lens of the Holy Spirit, God's salvation plan for me and for all of humanity. And when I begin to zoom out, you know, the things I'm dealing with, they don't go away. But by the grace of God, I'm praying that they can get to their correct size, right, in the magnitude of eternity. And so I'm just praying wherever you are, whatever you're doing, um, that as we take these next 20 or 30 minutes by the grace of God, um, that we would all just slow down, that we would ask the Holy Spirit. Um, you know, in fact, I just want to ask him now, Holy Spirit, as we go into this, Lord, um, I pray for an ability to slow down, God. You see all the busyness, the worries, the anxieties, the tasks that we need to do. Help us slow down, God. Help us listen to your word. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would be present. These words on their own, God, will do nothing. But by them being anointed by your presence, I believe that they can help us draw closer to you. They can encourage us and help us understand your word better. So, Lord, I pray for peace. I pray for a hedge of protection over every single person listening. And I pray, God, that your word would penetrate the hearts, God. God, I know that your word wants to transform hearts. So help us humble ourselves. God, we acknowledge we can't do it without you. So have your way in your name. Amen. And amen. Well, you know, I just, I, I want to just take that moment and just ask the Holy Spirit to come in to slow us down. I don't know where you've been at this week, but um, I just pray that we could dive into this together. We are, we're, we're going through Joshua chapter six this week. We've been going through the book of Joshua. We've been talking about the Joshua generation and the process in which God brought his chosen people into the promised land, that he brought them out of Egypt where they were in slavery and how he brought them into the land that he had promised Abraham, who was their ancestor. And so we're going through the book of Joshua. It's been a great time. I'm excited for Joshua chapter six. This chapter has so much in it. It's not only 
um, one of the longer chapters, but there's also just so many different parts to it. And so what I want us to do this week is we're going to break this thing up into three chunks. We're going to, we're going to break this, this, this chapter up and we're going to dive into three different parts of this chapter. I want to make sure we take our time and we, we talk and we discuss and we wrestle and we pray about these parts. So chapter six, we're going to split up into three parts and we're going to do something interesting where I'm actually going to start with the end of the chapter. Um, because there are some things that I want to address there that I think is important to hit first. So we're going to go to the end, and then we're going to go to the front, and then we're going to end in the middle. And so we're going to kind of jump to the end of this chapter, and we're going to take this thing on in three different bites. So um, chapter 6 of Joshua handles the very first conquest that we see. So from Joshua 1 through Joshua 5, we've had the preparation, we've had the calling, we've had Joshua begin leading the Israelites. They crossed over the Jordan. God uh, consecrated them through circumcision, which we talked about last week, and he prepared them now for addressing Jericho. Right? A lot of us, if we've been in church, You've heard um, Sunday morning, you know, children's stories about the walls of Jericho and how they came tumbling down. And this is chapter six. Chapter six is going to address God's command to conquering Jericho, what happened, what it looked like. Um, and so I want to take this chapter with Jericho in three parts. Um, the first one that I want to look at is actually going to be Jer or not Jericho, Joshua, Jericho chapter six. No, it's going to be Joshua chapter six. And I'm going to look at verses 20 through 27, 20 through 27. So what happens before 20 through 27, just to get us in the correct position to start reading these verses is God, um, he instructs the Israelites on how to capture Jericho. They follow his directions and the walls come tumbling down. And now what we're going to see is we're going to, we're literally picking up right when the walls are coming down. And we're going to read these seven verses, and I want to address some things that are really important in this chapter that I pray God will give us grace on. So verse 20, it says, When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. These are the Israelites. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in. And they took the city. They devoted the, the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had been spying out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. Again, they're talking about Rahab, who we read about earlier in the book. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. They then burned the whole city and everything in it, but they put the silver and the gold and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her because she hid the men Joshua had sent as spies to Jericho, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced this solemn oath, "'Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes to rebuild this city Jericho.'" At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua and his fame spread throughout the land. Praise God. So this is Joshua chapter 6. We just read the last eight verses, 20 through 27. 
um, we see the in the very first verse, we see that the, all the Israelites, they, they blew the trumpets, the priests blew their trumpets, the Israelites shouted, and the walls came down. Now again, the reason why they did those things, we can talk about in the next couple weeks, but I want to hit in these last eight verses something that's really important that I want to wrestle with with you and something that I've been wrestling with. And I think that um, a lot of uh, Christian circles, a lot of um, places of um, studying God's words, we tend to skip over this. Um, we tend to, to, to not address this, but as, as, a, as a ministry with Rise Up and as a spiritual leader, I want to I wanna preach the entire gospel. Right. Not only the entire gospel, but I want to preach the entire Bible, right? The entire word of God that we as Christians acknowledge as being the authority uh, canon, the authority books that we say, yes, these are inspired by God. I think it is so important as a community to read the entire counsel of God, to read the entire Bible and to wrestle with the things that are not just comfortable or the not or even just the things that are easy for us to understand and ignore the rest. But I want to address all of it. And I think that's so important to be in a relationship with God where we are doing that. I think it's honoring to the Lord. And so this week, what I want to talk about is I want to talk specifically about this process with Jericho. Right, because looking at the story of Jericho, it's easy for us to focus on, you know, how the walls came falling down, and we heard it in Sunday school, and we, you know, we 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 talk about how we can connect this to our spiritual lives with God tearing down walls in our lives, and you know, I think all that's true, and I and I even want to talk about some of that because I believe that the Holy Spirit has called us into this this position and this time, and I believe that those are happening in our lives, but I think it's really easy to focus on those things and with all other believers it's easy to be like oh Jericho amen right that's awesome the walls are falling down in my life you know we got to shout you got to pray I get all that and all that's awesome but with that being said as a spiritual leader I think that I have a responsibility and I believe that we as followers of Jesus have a responsibility to wrestle and to acknowledge the process in which God brought about the promise that he made to Abraham Right, because I see, yes, on one end, you know, God is giving them the promised land, but in this very first kind of head-to-head battle that we see with Jericho, I think that in these last eight verses, I'm stuck with this tension of God and the Israelites killing these people. Right? And and a lot of us like may have heard this kind of tension, but we kind of just ignore it because we're comfortable with ignoring it and focusing on other verses. But there, there's this question of saying, how can a good and how can a loving God do this to people, right? You see in verse, where is it? You see uh, in verse 21, it says that they devoted the city to the Lord and they destroyed with the sword every living thing in it. The men and the women, the young and the old cattle, sheep, and donkeys. Man, help me, Holy Ghost. We got to just sit in that for a second, right? It would be so easy for us to rip through Joshua chapter six, but I think that there's a responsibility to acknowledge what, what, what is this? How, how, do we, how do we wrestle with this? What does this mean, right? And we have a lot of people that say, you know, how can a good and loving God kill people? You know, how can a God and Jesus that we see in the New Testament but yet we see them going into a city, Jericho, and killing what the author writes, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkey. 
right? And so we look at that and we're like, how do we wrestle with that? And that's what I want to wrestle with you today. And if you are willing to wrestle with me, um, I think it's important as a spiritual leader to say that I don't have all the answers, right? That in, in, in the reality where I land at the end as, as, as a human is saying, God, your ways are not my ways. You know, your thoughts are not my thoughts. There is only so much that I can intellectually um, figure out, God, about you and about scripture. And no matter where I turn to, I'm always going to need to understand that, God, your ways are larger. Your ways are more than what I can understand as a human. And there's a humility in that that I think we wrestle with a lot in this culture because we, you that are listening to this, if you live in America, I don't care what city you grew up in, I don't care how old you are, it doesn't matter, we've all lived in the same culture, which is an American culture of individualism, which says that what you think is right is the most important thing. And people say things like, well, if that's your truth, that's okay which has a huge impact on how we view scripture, whereby followers of Jesus were professing that there is one truth, there is one way, praise God, and there is one life, and that is in Jesus. And so there's a huge wrestle here when we see things happening in scripture that don't seem to fit in our moral construct that we've created. Because the reality is that morality, I guess, or, or what's morally right and wrong, in reality is that's a very subjective construct that we create that can change from culture to culture. But all of us think that what I think is right and wrong, whatever that is, whatever buckets I've made, those are the things that are right or wrong. And so I want to just acknowledge this. I want to address this about what we see in scripture. And what's, what, what I think is really important in helping us understand that how could, you know, God is loving and we talk about his love, but how can this happen? And what do I do with this? I think we have to go back to Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7. Exodus 34, 6 and 7. This is a scripture that is incredibly important. It's one of the most um, reference scriptures throughout all of scripture. Um, and it actually gives us the most detailed description on what we call the characteristics of God. So Exodus 34, 6 and 7, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. Um, he's getting the commandments from the Lord. He's getting the rules of this relationship that God is putting in place with the Israelites. And Exodus 34, verse 6, it says that, that God passed in front of Moses, proclaiming the Lord, the Lord of compassion. Sorry, I'm going to read that again. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents of the third and fourth generation. Praise God. So, so right here in this text, we see characteristics of God. And this is God passing in front of Moses. And Moses is believed to have written the first five books of the Bible, which is known as the Torah. And Exodus is a part of those. And Moses writes that, that as God passed in front of him, God said that he is the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Right? So right there, we start to see characteristics drawn up about who God is. That God is compassionate. He is gracious. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love and faithfulness. And he's forgiving the wickedness, the rebellion, and the sin. Praise God. We love to tend to just stop there. We're like, great. 
you know, God's compassionate, he's gracious, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in love, faithfulness, he's going to forgive me of my wickedness. We love to focus on those things. And, that, and honestly, that makes sense, right? As a, as, as a human, because those parts of God, I love to lean into because those benefit me, right? Those benefit and say, man, when I mess up, God's going to forgive me, that God's compassionate, right? When I think about someone that had all these things, I would want to be friends with them because I'm like, man, they're compassionate. They, they're slow to anger. They're abounding in love. They're faithful, right? They're, they're forgiving of rebellion and sin. And all those things are great, but that is not what all of who God is, right? It goes on and it says, yet God does not leave the guilty unpunished. Right? In other words, he punishes those that are guilty. Well, what that is, is while that may seem aggressive, punishing those that are guilty is at the definition justice, right? That's a judge. It's judgment, right? But it's, but it's correct judgment, right? Because if you punish someone that is guilty, that's not a bad thing. I think judgment has such a negative connotation to it that literally when I say the word judgment inside of a message or a sermon... Everybody like draws their breath and like the breath and all the air leaves the room because we say judgment and you think of, oh, they're a judgy person. Well, the reality is the negative connotation of judgment is only negative when it's incorrect judgment or non-warranted judgment. But the reality is that we want a just person, right? A judge that, that, that correctly punishes those that are guilty in our legal system, that's a good thing. Right? In fact, we have problems with judges doing incorrect judgment. But the reality is that the Bible and the scripture saying that God does not leave the guilty unpunished, that is saying that he is, while he is loving and he is compassionate and he is gracious and he is slow to anger, God is also a God of judgment. God is also a God that is holy. God is also a God that is righteous. And I think it's so easy as believers and people that say, yes, I'm all about God as long as it's all about love and all about forgiveness and all about grace. And those things are not bad. They're not incorrect. And it's okay to love those things. I love those things about God. But as a believer, praise God, hallelujah, thank you, Holy Ghost. I cannot ignore the other parts of who God is, right? By me saying that someone is creative, that doesn't limit or does not mean that they're not detailed as well, right? That's just an example, right? That if I say, oh, you know, Sally Joe is really creative. From that statement alone, you cannot say, oh, well, therefore, Sally Joe can't be detailed, right? Those are different attributes that she can be creative and detailed, or she could be not creative, but also detailed. In the same way with the characteristics of God, by saying that God is loving, that does not mean that God cannot be a judge. That does not mean that there can't be judgment. Now again, judgment does not mean incorrect judgment because reality, praise God, is that as we see, praise God, through the scriptures, when you look at Genesis, we see Genesis 1 and 2, God made perfect relationship with humans, right? Adam and Eve, Genesis 1 and 2, things were great, right? It was awesome. The garden was great. But then in Genesis chapter 3, we see what we refer to as the fall, which is through deception from the devil, humans disobey God and we rebel against God. Therefore, we, we break the relationship that we had with God as his creation. And from Genesis 3 all the way to Revelation, praise God, and even today, right, right now, praise God, October 2020, we are still in the process of God's redemption plan, right? God bringing his creation back to him, 
right? And God does that through a lot of different mechanisms, right? What we see in the beginning in the Old Testament, in Exodus, and even in Genesis before that, we see that God makes a covenant. God makes an agreement. God makes an agreement with Abraham and all of his decisions. And he says that I'm going to redeem the world through your family, through all your descendants. You are going to be a people that is set aside for me. Right? And so I, I say all that because, yes, God is loving, but God is also a judge. God is also a God of wrath. And a lot of us are like, wait, I don't agree with that. Well, the reality is that I can't agree with the love of God, but then also say that the fact that he is a judge, and at that a correct and a perfect judge, right? because a perfect judge punishes those that are guilty. And by the definition of sin, right, that we are guilty and deserving of the wrath of God. Now, that's really hard for our pride. That's really hard for our individualism. And I have had so many people that are like, well, you know, if God's going to judge me, then I can't follow a God like that. Well, the reality is that there's an issue where you don't believe that you are deserving of the wrath of God. And the reality, praise God, help me, Holy Ghost, is if you don't believe that you're deserving of the wrath of God, then you don't believe that you needed saving. And so therefore, you didn't need Jesus. And the way that we believe that we get to the Father is through the blood of Jesus. So we cannot acknowledge the work that Jesus has done on the cross if you don't believe that you needed saving in the first place. Otherwise, all that you're using Jesus for is a way for you to feel good about yourself and be like, oh, I love the love. I love the forgiveness. I love the grace. But at any acknowledgement that God has the right as God and me as a human, I am a human. I'm dirt, right? That he is God. I am human. I don't really have any rights in that. So God can be a God of judgment. And there is a piece of God that is a correct judge. So then the question says, okay, Chris, well, I'm looking at this, this scripture, and I read in verse 21, it says that the Israelites, they devoted everything to the Lord, right? And the, the author even wrote, they destroyed with the sword every living thing, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So we look at that and we say, okay, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment, right? And we see the Canaanites that God gives the Israelites this land, and he says, hey, you got it. This is your land. I'm giving it to you. And we see God come in and God commands them to take over the city. And through that, in verse 22, we see that the author wrote that they killed the young and the old, the men and the women, all the cattle, the sheep and the donkeys. Now this is, I just want to hit on this really quick. This is a point of tension that a lot of people are like, man, they killed not just the men or the warriors maybe, but the author is using words like men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep and donkeys. So we start to look at, man, well, how do we reconcile that? Right? And there are a lot of different viewpoints here, but I think it's important just to at least mention it. There are a lot of different interpretations from theologians, and it really boils down to how you read the Old Testament and how you read Scripture. Because, And this is a saying that I want you to get, and I continue to tell people this, and I've been told this, and it's so important. We cannot, my, my point of view, I'll say this, my point of view, it's so important as a spiritual leader to say that there are different schools of thoughts and that's something that each believer needs to, I believe, uh, read those schools of thoughts, pray, and have the Holy Spirit show you where you're persuaded by. Because the reality is that every single way that we interpret scripture, it's going to take a leap of faith. Absolutely everything that we do takes a portion of faith. But when I look at these scriptures, I believe, praise God, that, that the Bible needs to, be needs to be read, not literally, 
but literarily. That means basically that I don't read a science book the same way that I would read poetry today, right? The same way that I wouldn't read a history book. I read them in different ways based on the genre that they're in, right? For instance, there are what we call literary devices, right? Hyperboles, stuff like that, where for instance, if someone says it's raining cats and dogs, most of us don't really believe that it was actually raining cats and dogs, right? That would be really weird. But a lot of us are like, oh, I understand that. They're using that as, you know, they're using that as a figure of speech to try to convey a message, praise God, that it was raining really heavy, right? But they use what they call a literary device or they say, you know, she's done this a million times. We don't actually mean that they've done it a million times, but they're using it as a, as a literary device because when you're telling someone the story, what you're trying to convey is you're trying to convey the narrative. You're trying to paint the picture to the listener, praise God, of, of how many times they've done it. You don't, you're not actually making the claim that she's done it literally a million times. And we do this all subconsciously. So I believe that, that within the Bible, again, the Bible is one book, but it's made up of 66 books, right? And within these books, there are different genres. There are different types of books. There's poetry like the Psalms, right? There's, 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 there's various historical narratives, right? Like Acts or even the Gospels, right? And, and, and actually 40% of the Old Testament is historical narratives. And so something I just want I just want to plant this seed and, and, and this is something that I've been able to wrestle with and I want you to wrestle with it. But the book of Joshua, particularly what we are reading, this is a book that is widely regarded as genre-wise. This is a book that is not only a historical narrative, but also this is what they call a Near Eastern warfare text. So where a warfare text is a particular genre of text that we see throughout history, right? We see warfare text in the Near Eastern sense from the Egyptians. We see it from the Hittites. We see it from more Egyptians. We see it from the Moabites. These were all people in that, in that Near Eastern area that would generate war texts. And so a lot of it, when I read scripture, a lot of the evidence that you're looking for is not only within scripture, number one is, is, is there similarities throughout other scriptures, but a lot of what can tell you on, I'll say the probability, or I would say even evidence of our interpretation needs to come from even outside of the Bible, right? In other words, other texts that were around in that time or prior to that time. And something I think that is really important is that as a Near Eastern warfare text, my belief is I said, okay, what are some of the literary devices that were used in these genres, right? That were used in these books way back in, you know, Joshua's written, they believe around 1400 BC plus or minus, right? So 1400 BC, what, what different devices were used because the author, whether it was Joshua or, or some people that added additions to the book, whoever was the author at that time, they were influenced by those types of writings that they had seen, right? Just like, just like if you said, hey, it was raining cats and dogs. I don't believe that you came up with that. I believe that you heard that somewhere. And so you adopted that into your vocabulary based on what you had heard. Praise God. In the same way, what's really interesting is there are a lot of Near Eastern warfare texts that, that historians have studied, and there is what they call stock language that they use to communicate the message. So in these warfare texts, what the goal of the author was is the author wanted to convey to the listeners the, the a lot of times, superiority of the, 
of the um, of the armies, right? And so, for instance, there's there, there's a there's a literary device that is used in these books is what they what we would call it's closest to modern day bragging, right? So here's an example. Um, I'm playing uh, soccer against somebody and I beat them three to two, right? And I go to you and and I want to number one create a maybe even a a more emotional narrative. But also, I want to convey to you that I'm superior to the person that I beat in soccer. I want to really convey that to you. So what I could say is, even though I won three to two, I could say, man, I destroyed that person in soccer. When in the reality, I didn't actually destroy them. I won three to two, barely on the last second goal. But what I want to convey to you is I want to convey the fact that I won the superiority of my side compared to the other side. And so we use literal, we, we, we use literary devices as part of our narratives. And you know what we do today is exactly the same as what they did thousands of years ago, is that within these Near Eastern warfare texts, they would use language like, um, what the Hebrew word is harem. So when they talk about completely destroyed, they would use verbiage here that was what they would call kind of stock language. And so what's really interesting is there's even, I'll just give you one example. There's, um, it's called, uh, there, was a, there was a pharaoh called, uh, what was his name? It was Tuthmosis III, right? Tuthmosis III was an Egyptian um, pharaoh and he was in the later 15th century. So this is actually within 100 years or so of Joshua. And we've actually uncovered um, archaeological manuscripts and different things, engravings, um, hydroglyphs um, on the, 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 the pyramids. And there's this little section from Egypt's pharaoh called Tuthmosis III, later 15th century is what we've, we've dated it as roughly. And it's interesting because he, he, in that he boasts, like he says, the numerous armies of the, Mid, of, of the Midianites, which was a group of people, they were overthrown within the hour. They were annihilated totally like those non-existent. But then what's interesting is, you know, he uses that verbiage, this Egyptian pharaoh, but then we see evidence 300 years later in the fourth, or not 300, about 100 years later in the 14th century BC that the Midianites, that they were actually living, and we have evidence of them living over 100 years later. So in other words, that, that the pharaoh wrote and they had the, the, the narrative in the warfare text describe that, uh, you know, that, hey, we utterly destroyed them. But what we see later is that these these individuals were still living over 100 years later. And I think that that's just important because when I look at there's even stock language that they talk about when they talk about men and women, young and old. We actually see that throughout different manuscripts outside of the Bible in these warfare texts where they use words like that, trying to convey similarly that destroying in a soccer game would convey that, that they, that they destroyed everyone. And they use words like young and old men and women. And so what I'm saying is that it's not, it's not trying to give justification. It's not even saying that, Hey, this is what it is. This is a really important thing that I think is really important to look at though, when we look at these texts. And so I think I just wanted to share that with you of when it looks at men and women, young and old, that doesn't necessarily without a reasonable doubt mean that they absolutely killed children and women and men, that this is a genre. This is a type of book, right? Praise God. And so I think it's important to look at those at those exaggerations that come forward and remember that this is an author that is that is giving a narrative, right? And so and so for a lot of us though you might be like, okay, Pastor Chris, that's great. You know, so maybe it wasn't just, you know, maybe it wasn't children and women and whatever. But what what how do we deal with still the fact that God was 
justifying killing people, right? How do, how do we deal with that? How do we deal with God telling these Israelites to go and they go and they kill anybody? What does that mean? What does that wrestle? And in fact, why didn't God kill the Israelites, right? Because the reality is that, okay, if these Canaanites, the people in Jericho, if they were worshiping other idols, right? If they were worshiping other lower G gods, why didn't God kill the Israelites, Right? Why was God, and why were the Israelites justified, quote unquote, to go and to take and to kill these people? Right? And the answer is, 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 is truly back in Exodus. Praise God. Because in Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus 24, we see this. And this is, this is really one of the biggest points. Is that in Exodus 19, we see that the Israelites enter into a covenant relationship with God. The Israelites in Exodus, they became, they, they, they entered into a covenant relationship with God. And so what I believe is, I believe the only reason why the Israelites did not, quote, did not deserve the wrath that God had for them was simply because of the covenant relationship that they were in. And similarly today is I believe that every single one of us, that we are all sinners and that we fall short of the glory of God. And so because of the covenant relationship that the Israelites made in Exodus, right, the Israelites said God gave them all these rules. You know, you won't have any gods before me. You know, all these different commandments. And the Israelites responded and they said, yes, we agree. And they literally said, according to the scriptures, we will do everything the Lord has said. And so, boom, in that moment, they enter into a covenant relationship, right? Where we say, hey, this is what we've agreed to. So now, therefore, when they break the covenant, God is now justified because they've broken the covenant. And what's crazy is like, we're not even talking about like a year later, literally during the ceremony where Moses is up on Mount Sinai, he's actually getting the tablets. We see that all the Israelites in Exodus 32, that they start breaking the covenant, they make this golden calf and they start worshiping other gods. So right in that moment, they broke the covenant. But because God is merciful, because he does forgive rebellion, that God says, because I'm in covenant with you, I'm going to keep you. I'm going to forgive you and I'm going to cover you so that you do not experience the wrath that is deserving. And this isn't just an Israelite thing, right? A lot of people are like, oh my gosh, you know, it was an ethnic thing. It was just the Israelites and everyone else was doomed. No, no, because we see throughout scripture that there were, ex there were exceptions for people that turned to God, right? Think about Rahab, right? Earlier and even in the scripture, it says that they went in, they grabbed Rahab and her family and they said, you are good to go. Why did Rahab get the exception? Rahab was the exception because Rahab went into a covenant and an agreement with the spies a couple chapters earlier. That They said, if you don't tell anyone, put the scarlet cord over your window, praise God. And what that was doing is that was symbolic of the blood of Jesus. That was, ex that, that was symbolic and even prophetic of being underneath the blood of Jesus. The lamb, right? And in that point, it wasn't Jesus, but it was all the sacrifices, right? It was the blood of the lamb that if you sacrifice these burnt offerings, God set this up in Leviticus, is that if you sacrifice these burnt offerings, then that will be atonement for your sin. And so by Rahab agreeing to go into a, a relationship, a covenant, an agreement with the Israelites, Rahab was then grafted into the kingdom of God. And so there are exceptions that God brings in. So it wasn't an ethnic thing. It was a spiritual thing. It was, it was, it was other people 
people worshiping other gods, right? You look at not only Rahab, but you look at Ruth, right? That Ruth was a Moabite woman, but she made a covenant with Boaz, who was her redeemer. And Boaz, praise God, and and Ruth actually became the great-grandmother of David, right? David the king. So we see Ruth, a Moabite woman, non-Israelite woman, by God working in her life, she made a covenant. She got married to Boaz and she actually became the great-grandmother of David, right? So we see that it's by grace through faith that you've been saved, right? Because Rahab had faith that God, she said it, she said, God, I know that your Lord is the God of heaven and earth, right? So right there, she professed her faith in God. And because of that, because of the grace of God, that she professed her faith in God, that she was then saved by God's judgment. That again, God's judgment, because he is God, God plays the role of not only loving and merciful, but God is also a judge. And so then the individualistic question says, well then, you know, how do you know when someone is deserving of judgment? Well, the reality and whether people don't like this answer or not, what I believe is that that's the judge's call. That again, God's ways, I, I, I have a limited understanding in my intellect. And if I say I will only believe what I believe is right or wrong, that makes me the subjective God in the situation. Because what I've deemed as right and wrong is completely subjective of my past, my beliefs, my culture. So then everyone has different ideas of what's subjective and what's right or wrong. So what happens when my right or wrong clashes with your right or wrong? Well, the, well my belief is that God is the creator of all life, the Bible says. And so God has the... God has the superior authority to judge the way that he judged. And I believe that God judges perfectly. Because Ephesians chapter 2, Paul said this to the church in, in Ephesus. He said, all of us have lived among the sinners at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and its thoughts. He said, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. In other words, every single one of us, we fall short of God's standard. That's at its essence what sin is. Sin is missing the mark of God's standard. But it's by grace in Jesus Christ that we have been saved. But Paul says this. He says, every single one of us, by nature, we were deserving of wrath. We were dead in our transgressions, right? What does death mean, right? Death means separation from God, right? And otherwise, it is incredibly important that we understand that if we do not believe in Jesus Christ, we are going to hell. That without the atonement of Jesus, and a lot of people don't like this today because we're getting into the into the into the age of of, of of universalism, of you know, there are many different ways to God, but the reality is that the scriptures, the Christian Bible, tells us that the only way to the Father is through the Son. The only way through to God is through Jesus Christ. That is what our Bible says. And so therefore, if we do not go and if we do not come under the blood of Jesus. We cannot get to the Father. So in other words, those that do not profess their allegiance to Jesus in faith in Jesus, they are going to hell. Hell is complete separation from God. Hell is real. And a lot of us are like, oh my gosh, how could God being a a judging God 
condemn people to hell. Well, the reality is that we're all deserving of that. That's actually what it means to be just, is that you are you get what you deserve. And so instead of us having this individualistic spirit of saying, somehow I get to decide what is morally right or morally wrong, the reality is that every single one of us are deserving of hell, deserving of separation from God. But because I believe in the scriptures, the Bible says that if I believe in my heart, and if I profess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord, then I'll be saved. Then I get to go, what we say heaven, but heaven isn't so much a place. Heaven is a perfect relationship eternally with God. But conversely, there is a hell. There is eternal separation from God. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31, Jesus is very clear here. Jesus is talking about a rich man and a guy named Lazarus, right? He says this. He says, Luke chapter 16, verse 19 through 31, he says, There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered in sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Right? So we see the beggar died. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. Right? So right now, Jesus is talking about this. Right, So Jesus has painted two individuals. He said there was one man that on the natural, he was clothed in linen, purple cloth. Right, Purple cloth was a sign of royalty. So honestly, this looks like the, the, the religious elite. That there was this man that had all the things on this earth. And then there was a man named Lazarus who, was sore, who had sores. He was a beggar. He was poor. And Jesus says that both of them die. And look where he puts both of them. He says that one of them was in Abraham's bosom is what some... Um, is what some translations say. But it says that, that Lazarus was with Abraham. But then he said that the rich man was down in Hades and he was in torment. He looked up, he saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great schasm uh, which has been set in place so that those who want to go from here cannot. But those that want to cross over to us cannot. He answered, then I beg you, father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warm them so that they will also not come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let Let them listen to them. No, father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. Right? So he's saying, if you just send and someone rises from the grave, then they're gonna, that'll be a sign for them. And they'll say, no, 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 we will repent. Right? We're gonna, we're, we believe in Jesus. And then he said, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. So this is what I want to close with is that this passage with Jesus right here shows us very clearly that there is a heaven and there is a hell. And I, I truly believe that as a spiritual leader, I cannot stop and not have a conversation about hell, right? Even talking about judgment, even for this study right now, going through verses 20 through 27 in Joshua 6, there's a whole conversation that a lot of you are like, oh my gosh, can't believe we talked for 43 minutes about God's judgment. But yeah, there's a tension here in the text that we have to wrestle with. And as a spiritual leader, I cannot water down the scripture and say, hey, 
God's going to forgive you. You can do whatever you want. Because the reality is that God is a God of love. I believe that completely, that God has unconditional love for us as we continue to profess our relationship with him. But God is also a God of judgment. And in my opinion, God being God, the very essence of me saying that God is God, God has a right to judge. I do not have a right to decide what is good and what is evil. Right? And, and, and Jesus clearly said that there will be a heaven and there will be a hell. And those do that, that, that do not profess that Jesus is Lord, we believe that they will be in hell. Eternal separation from God. And so many, we don't, we don't talk about this in the church because we're all terrified as a pastor that if I tell you that there's a hell and if I tell you that there is sin and God forbid, I, I, I acknowledge that there are things that we are doing that are sinful, that God hates. I'm terrified that you're going to leave. Cause it's like, man, if I say anything about sin, they're going to call us a judgy church. They're going to call me a judgy pastor and they're going to leave. But the reality is I cannot water down the story of God, which says, yes, there is sin. There are things that God hates. God calls us to be righteous through his son, Jesus. And the scriptures are very clear that if we do not profess Jesus as Lord, then there is a hell that we deserve. And so when I see this scripture with Jericho, I think it's so important to acknowledge that this is true, that God saved the Israelites because of the relationship they had with him. That the Israelites weren't some extra holy people. They, Especially when you read scripture, they were broken. They were messed up. They continued to rebel against God. And at times, God's judgment does come on the Israelites along with everyone else. But we see throughout scripture that God is always redeeming his people. He's always showing forgiveness to them because they agreed to be in a covenant agreement with them. And that's the same thing today. That for those of us that say, yes, Jesus is Lord, God's not asking you to be perfect. Heck, I I even believe that once you profess that Jesus is Lord, even if you mess up, if you ask for forgiveness, because the Bible says, I'm not just saying that I think this, the Bible says that if you profess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that you will be saved. And if you believe in your heart, you will be saved. And then also that if you... If you ask for forgiveness of your sins, if you confess your sins one to another, that God is faithful and just to forgive you of sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That means that if I acknowledge that I am sinful, if I acknowledge and say, God, I am a sinner, I've fallen short of your glory. And if I do that, and if I acknowledge that, then God is faithful to bring me back into relationship with him. That is the amazing miracle of Jesus Christ. But I think it's so important today to acknowledge that there is a heaven and a hell. There is judgment. God is a God of wrath. God is a God of judgment. If you don't believe me, look at Revelation when it talks about Jesus is coming back. Because let me just tell you, everyone, Jesus is coming back. And he's coming back to judge the world. He's coming back. And those that do not enter in a relationship with Jesus, they will be in complete separation with God for eternity, what we call hell. And so that's part of the urgency of sharing the gospel is because we want people to to come into relationship with Jesus so that they can be covered from the judgment that God has. And so I'm praying that today, I know, you know, we're, we're, we're done. I wanted, I wanted to take this time, though, to just wrestle through these, these eight verses. I think it's important. It's not, we don't need to have all the answers. Again, I, I, I submit to you that even after all of 
what I look at literary through the scriptures and different texts throughout the Bible, I think it's important to acknowledge is that at the end, God is God and I am a human. I, I don't know all the answers, but for me, the fact that he is God, I submit in humility that I don't need to know all the answers, that he is God and I'm going to ask for revelation, but I trust him. And I thank God for the mercy that is in Jesus. I thank God that, yeah, while he is a God of judgment, he is a God of love. He is a God of mercy. And so I just pray that we would continue to follow that today, that we would lean into the humility of that, but also lean into the comfort that we are saved through the blood of Jesus.